Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good afternoon and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Before we bring on our guest today, I invite you to join our conversation live by calling in at 877-864-4869. Again, that's 877-864-4869. You can log into our chat room at toginet.com or you can communicate with us through Twitter via the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. All right, let's get to it. Today we are focusing on somewhat of a controversial subject. And I say it's controversial because people can get into very heated debates. You know, your mother, your father told you, you know, money can't buy happiness. And in fact, there is compelling evidence out there in the world, in the scientific and and psychological communities, that says it can. So what role does money, sex, and love all play in our happiness. Well, we're all saying that's probably a no-brainer, but there is um, some more information, some new information that we can share on the subject. Our first guest is Elizabeth Dunn. She is an associate professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. She has an esteemed list of credentials, but she also is the author of Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. I am ready to get into this juicy subject because at the heart of happy money, there are key principles that you share and discuss about ways to increase 
our everyday happiness, both personally as an individual, within a family unit, and collectively in a corporate or group environment. And I'd love for you to talk about the book and some of these tips. Well, I'm very excited to have a chance to uh, share our ideas with your listeners. Um, And really where we started from was just thinking about the idea that, you know, that you mentioned that money can't buy happiness. And I think to some extent, um, researchers have uh, sometimes argued in favor of this idea because the relationship between money and happiness is there. Uh, People who make more money are happier than those who make less, but it's relatively weak. It's smaller than many people assume. So some um, scholars and members of the media and so forth look at that and go, oh, well, money really can't buy happiness. But what we argue is that people actually are spending their money wrong. People consistently seem to use their money on things that don't, that we know that science tells us don't actually make much of a difference for happiness. So what we're trying to do is turn it around and figure out whether you have a little money or a lot of money, how should you use what you do have in order to buy yourself the most happiness? Mm. And and that really is the big question because while we all know both folklorically what our parents have told us and what the science is bearing out that that once we have our basic needs met and I think that's really important to say obviously if we are homeless or without basic medical care or don't have food in our stomach we're not going to be very happy but once the basic needs are met and we're all operating with uh, the basics the basics being covered money represents something very different. Exactly. And I think the point about basic needs is is really essential. So um, certainly living in poverty uh, can be very devastating. But I think for most of us uh, today living in North America, we're very fortunate to be living a life where, yeah, many of us feel like, you know, there's more that we want, but we have enough food, we have shelter. And so now the question becomes, well, how can we use our money to really optimize our happiness? And we present um, uh, five principles, all based on a lot of scientific research, that we think people can use in their day-to-day lives to make happier spending decisions. So, Dr. Elizabeth Dunn, tell us. Tell us some of these things that we can do, what, what, what you write in Happy Money. One, I know, is to buy experience, and I love this because it's about memory-making and adventure. The idea here is that we, uh, people consistently get more happiness from buying experiences, everything from trips to concerts to special meals, than they do from buying material things, from uh, couches all the way to houses. Well, let me ask you something. As a as somebody who's been working in this field myself for many years, and I espouse you know the same kinds of things that you do and what you write, but I happen to also know that once in a while, if I get a really good pair of high heels, and I say that with the utmost reverence, I know it won't buy me lasting happiness, but it does give me a great thrill, you know, and I enjoy it. So there is a fine line between going out and buying experience and making memories and then the sort of hedonic pleasure that we get from, you know, from from owning it in a great pair of heels or a dress or something that makes us feel good. I would agree. I, too, have bought pairs of shoes that I really love. (laughs) And certainly there are, you know, times where material purchases do make us 
genuinely happy. So we're not really questioning that. What we're saying is that um, especially over time, experiential purchases tend to yield more lasting uh, rewards in terms of happiness, in part because experiential purchases seem to be less susceptible to regret, just as we've probably all had the experience of you know, buying that pair of shoes or whatever that we really love. I think probably almost all of us have had the experience of buying a material thing that then ends up disappointing us, that we regret buying or realize, oh, you know, that was really a mistake. And certainly that, can, um, that kind of buyer's remorse can happen with any purchase, but research shows that material things are particularly susceptible to that experience of buyer's remorse. In contrast, when people are asked to list their past um, uh, regrets over things that they've bought or have uh, skipped out on buying, what people regret when it comes to experiences is the experiences they didn't buy, like that, you know, spring break trip that all your friends in college went on and, you know, you stayed home or, you know, that really special night out that you decided to stay in. Um, Those are the kinds of purchases that people regret not buying, whereas uh, when it comes to material things, people regret what they did buy. Mm, this is this is a, a great um, point because one of the other things that I see from the buying experience model is that once that memory is made, once that event is captured, and it's a positive one, which we hope it is if you're doing something that you love, the ability to recall that positive memory, the afterlife of it, and what it does to uh, maintain well-being levels or happiness levels, as well as mindfulness to bring us back to to ourselves is very powerful. And I think that's a really insightful point. What we're finding more and more is that the real advantages of experiential purchases kind of um, emerge over time. So, uh, for example, experiences make better stories than material things. There's actually research showing that you will be liked more if you talk about experiences you bought rather than material things that you bought. So, you know, it's much more interesting to hear about somebody's African safari than about their new renovated bathroom or marble countertops. <laughs> that's, that's very funny and true. And what about making it a treat? You write about treat making. Right. So uh, the idea here is that um, the human happiness system is really tuned to change. So when we get something lovely, does tend to capture our attention, but over time we sort of adapt to whatever we've got. So we suggest that uh, it's really worthwhile to turn our favorite things back into treats. And in fact, it can actually be best to have our favorite things a little less often. That can actually enhance our ability to enjoy them. And that is uh, goes to savoring. You know, when we make what we love really a treat, when we do get it or buy it or choose to indulge in it, we really pay attention to how it tastes, how it feels, how it sounds, all the things that make us savor the experience in the moment. That's right. So giving something up for even a little bit, it turns out, can enhance our ability to savor. So, for example, in one study we had... um, students come into our lab and eat some chocolate, and then we uh, told uh, one group of them to please give up chocolate for a whole week 
Meanwhile, we sent others home with a big bag of chocolate and asked them to eat as much as they comfortably could over the subsequent week. And finally, <laughs> we had a third group who we said, you know, we just basically didn't give them any special chocolate-related instructions. And then we brought people back a week later and asked everybody to eat some chocolate. Hold now, that thought because you- we're going to go to a break, and I want to I want to do the big reveal about this sure. experiment when we come back from break. To learn more about Dr. Elizabeth Dunn and her work, you can visit um, www.dunn.psych.ubc.ca, and the book is Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. When we come back, we're going to do the big reveal about what it means to eat as much chocolate as you as you can, um, withhold eating chocolate, or not being told to do either way, either thing, and then what the science reveals about making what you love a treat instead of indulging yourself every minute of every day. Here come those tunes, and we'll come right back with Dr. Elizabeth Dunn, the author author of Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. I wanted to make a difference. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. This is Buzz Local Radio. We had these three topics here, and we just added a fourth to start talking about hot dogs. He's in a band. We both had guitars, so I went over to his house Christmas Day that so day. We had to start a band. And uh, I think we wrote four I or five that songs feeling. that afternoon. And Cannibalistic Fish was one of them. Cannibalistic Fish. I couldn't do the dreads. My mom would not let me wear my pants backwards Darn. to school either. That was wiggity, 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 wiggity. <laughs> Buzz Local Radio. Available for free download on toginet.com. That's T-O-G-I-N-E-T dot com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on T-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Well. 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about money, 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 money and the relationship between money and happiness. And my guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Dunn. She is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, actually an associate professor of psychology there. She is also the author of Happy Money, the Science of Happier Spending. And prior to the break, we were talking about an experiment that she was involved with. Uh, that was about chocolate, and I'll let her uh, chime in and carry on with the story, but it was about treat making. What happens when we don't indulge ourselves every minute of every day in what we love, but we restrain ourselves and then introduce that item back into our lives? Dr. Dunn, take it away. Well, so I think the fascinating thing about this study is that it seems like you know, going home with a big bag of chocolate and getting told by the experimenters to eat as much as you want would probably be a good thing for your happiness, if not your waistline. Uh, and, and yet what we found is that uh, stu- people who had been asked to give up chocolate really reaped a benefit. So people who had been asked to give up chocolate for a week in- ended up enjoying it more when they came back to our lab compared to those people who had had as much of it as they wanted. And so uh, we would argue that although this is a very simple experiment, it actually captures a fundamental problem of modern society, which is that abundance seems to get in the way of enjoyment. Mm. That, can you repeat that? Because that is really, really powerful for, for, for myself as well as the listener, listeners. We find that abundance really undermines enjoyment. So there's a kind of paradox of modern society where we can get so much of the things that we like, and yet that abundance can actually impair our capacity to savor the little pleasures of daily life. And that reminds me of this concept of being a bowl with a hole that I often refer to us human beings as bowls with a hole that we can never get enough of what it is that we think that we want and once we do our our minds and our eyes are always wandering for the next thing that it is that we think we want. Exactly and I think that's really a fundamental problem that many of us don't uh, recognize in kind of making our day-to-day choices. Okay, let's move on to the next item here. The concept of buying time, using our money to buy time. Yeah, so the idea here is that um, what really matters for our happiness is how we spend the days and minutes of our lives. And I think this is the kind of thing that we recognize on an abstract level, but when it comes to making day-to-day purchases, we sometimes lose sight of this. So we would argue that when you are deciding whether to make a purchase, you should ask yourself, will this purchase change the way I spend my time? Now, for many purchases, the answer is no. Buying that 12th pair of high heels is probably not going to change the way that you spend your time. In contrast, you know, if you don't have a dining room table where you can have friends over for dinner, well, that purchase might change the way that you spend your time. Uh, And so we think that by using money in order to increase the uh, uh, value of the way we spend our time, uh, we can actually get more happiness out of our money. Hmm, Interesting. How does that play in, for example, when somebody pays a cleaner to come and clean the house? This is what pops into my mind, for example, that... Go ahead. Exactly, yeah. So uh, for me, I am a terrible cleaner. My husband absolutely marvels at my incredible inability to even do the most sort of basic cleaning tasks around the house. Uh, And I just hate cleaning. I dread it. 
And so I'm a big believer that it's worthwhile for me to outsource that task to somebody else, to give up a little bit of my disposable income so that I'm not spending my Saturdays cleaning the house, doing something that I dread. And in fact, we're planning an experiment right now where we're going to look at whether people can get more happiness from their money by using it to buy themselves out of some of their most dreaded tasks. Oh, I would say yes. Sign me up. I can be one of your guinea pigs. (laughs) I definitely would say yes. I too am not fond of of scrubbing toilets. uh, We're also looking at... um, you know, all kinds of purchases, whether, for example, the choice between, say, a goldfish versus a dog, right? A dog costs a lot more than a goldfish. It does, a dog does take more of your time, but a dog also commits you to spending time outside, to socializing with your neighbors. Um, I have a Welsh corgi who forces me to go to the beach with him frequently. He, by purchasing a dog, you're changing the way you spend your time. And so we would really encourage people to recognize that link. So to, so to think, when you pull out your wallet and make a purchase, think, how is this purchase going to change the way I use my time? Mm, point well taken. All right. Pay now, consume later. So um, very often in modern society, we tend to consume right away and often pay for it much later. Uh, But in fact, we argue that people should do exactly the opposite. We should pay now and consume later. And this comes along with a couple of benefits. For one thing, by paying now, we're less likely to overspend. And in fact, debt is really um, a drag when it comes to happiness. Uh, So that's helpful right there. And by consuming later, we can reap a whole bunch of benefits because um, when we know that something good is coming to us in the future, for example, if we're going to take a really great vacation at the end of the summer, we have all summer to kind of look forward to it. And that anticipatory pleasure is a meaningful source of happiness that we often overlook. Mm. So that also involves a little bit of uh, scheduling, you know, that the concept of scheduling, it helps us organize our time, our goals, our, the anticipation. So it is, it is related to that. What about, for example, like um, coupon organizations like Groupon, where the, the, they're playing into this concept that you pay now for something that you think that you want. It can be a trip, it can be a widget, whatever it is, and you're getting it at a good and discounted price. And the idea is that you then cash it in or redeem it when you're ready for the experience. Well, I think being able to pay with something other than money, for example, to you just present a piece of paper that you've long since paid for that entitles you to a massage, for example, uh, can be really beneficial because uh, sort of disentangling payment and consumption helps to avoid uh, kind of polluting the pleasures of consumption with the really unpleasant thing of giving up our hard-earned money. And, of course, you're still paying for that massage. No matter how great the Groupon deal was, you're still, you know, giving up some of your money for it. But psychologically, people feel um, much less sort of pain from paying when, that, uh, when they've paid for it up front. So if, you know, I've long since paid off that Groupon and finally it's three months later and I get around to using it, it feels free. I feel like my massage is free. Exactly. And, and the art of the deal, that we feel like we've gotten something at a preferential rate uh, that makes it more meaningful, too. It ties back into the value that we assign to it. Exactly. And so uh, there's a whole bunch of advantages that come uh, from you know paying as soon as you can and consuming as late as you can. 
All right, the next one, invest in others. And this has got to be one of the most precious um, tips or revelations that you're making in your book to me. Yeah, so this is really where we started um, in our research on money and happiness. So we started by thinking about, you know, how could people use their money in happier ways? And one of the most interesting and surprising findings from happiness research is that one of the best sources for happiness is actually um, doing things for other people. So we thought, okay, well, what if people use their money to benefit others? So in one of our first experiments on this topic, we um, went out on campus with $5 and $20 bills and basically just walked up to people and gave them cash and said, hey, you know, we're going to give you some free money, but we want to tell you how to spend it. Um, and so we told half the people to just spend the money on themselves, and we told half the people to spend the money on somebody else. And then we just called people up at the end of the day to see how they were doing. And what we found was that people who had been assigned to spend this little bit of cash on somebody else were significantly happier compared to people who'd been told to spend the money on themselves. Fascinating, but not surprising. And it is plays into the whole value of connection, which is known to breed happiness. Right. So spending money on others seems to be particularly good for our happiness when it helps us really connect with other people we care about. But remarkably, it can even give us sort of an enhanced sense of social connection when we use the money to benefit somebody we've never met, you know, when you know that your money is going to help um, a sick child, for example. And, and I think to me, what is kind of surprising about our findings is that we see the same benefit um, from spending money on others, uh, whether we look at people in Canada and North America who have a fair bit of disposable income, or whether we look at people in places like Uganda, India, and South Africa, in poor and rich countries alike, we find that individuals who use their money to benefit others end up happier. Beautiful. It, 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 this is a beautiful note because we're almost out of time, and and, and I can't believe that the, that our time together has gone so quickly. But I want to just point out to our listeners that you have been working in the field of positive psychology for many years. That you began um, in your undergraduate studies at the Harvard University, where you worked with Dan Gilbert, who is the best-selling author of *Stumbling on Happiness*. You completed your doctorate at the University of Virginia and postdoctoral work in Australia at the University of New South Wales, and in two thousand. Seven, you were honored by the Mind Gym. You received the academic prize for pioneering work in the field of positive psychology. You are a distinguished, distinguished researcher, and that you have appeared all over the place, from the New York Times to Fox and Friends, MSNBC's Morning Joe, Ted Forbes, and on and on and on. So you you know a few things about uh, money and happiness. And I want to uh, let our listeners know that they can learn more about Dr. Elizabeth Dunn and her work at uh, dunn.psych.ubc.ca. And I have one more question for you, and that is about intuition and money and happiness. That's okay. Uh, that, that when it comes to spending money, most people kind of just follow their gut, right? Right. So I think most of us know or think we know um, how to spend our money in order to be happy. When, uh, you know, uh, there's 
sort of uh, rows and rows and rows of books on how to get more money. But surprisingly, our book was actually the first to say, well, okay, forget about getting more money. How can you be happier with the money that you have? And I think, you know, the reason that we were the first ones to uh, study this is that um, uh, most people feel like, oh, I don't need advice. I have no problem spending money. I'm great at spending money, right? Um, and yet, uh, in fact, what we see in uh, large-scale research is that people aren't necessarily um, getting as much happiness as they could uh, from their own spending choices. And so I think it's worthwhile to consider what the scientific literature can tell us about the kinds of spending choices that can make us happier. And I think one of the surprising findings from this work is that, we know that um, tough and we are going to break. Dr. Dunn, we are going to break. Money. We are going to break, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Well, welcome back. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast because we are talking about the relationship between money and happiness, one that has been researched, explored, dissected. And our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Dunn. She is the author of Happy Money, the Science of Happier Spending. And prior to the break when we so rudely were interrupted by the commercials, and I apologize for that. We like to slide into them gracefully, but it doesn't always happen. Um, we were talking about the relationship of intuition, that we, that we spend money quite intuitively. And Dr. Dunn is suggesting that when we are more deliberate, more mindful, more on point about the ways we spend our monies, the how of, of, the, of the dollar bill, that it, it actually can increase our happiness. So Dr. Dunn, talk a little bit more about that. Uh, you know, although most of us, for example, resonate with the idea that, you know, helping others is a good thing and that helping others is good for happiness, when we actually hand people money and say, hey, do you want to spend this on yourself or do you want to spend this on somebody else? It turns out most people say they'd rather spend it on themselves. Thank you very much. Um, and so I think even though uh, even people who really uh, embrace some of the broad principles of, you know, helping others and so forth can lose sight of this in their day-to-day spending choices. And in fact, research suggests that uh, just thinking about money can orient us toward our own sort of selfish desires and needs and make us less concerned about the needs of others. And so I think our work is an attempt to help people 
um, make that connection to say, okay, well, when I make my spending choices, let me think about some of these broader values and principles and actually apply them in the way that I, you know, choose to spend this $5 bill. Mm, Point well taken. Let's talk for a moment about um, getting the biggest bang for the buck, the biggest happiness bang. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one way to do it is to combine some of the principles that we've been talking about. So we've been talking about the value of buying experiences and of spending money on others. Well, it turns out that one great way to get a big happiness bang for your buck is actually to buy an experience for somebody else. So some brand new research coming out of the University of Pennsylvania uh, at the Wharton School suggests that um, uh, one of the best gifts that you can buy for somebody else is to buy them an experience. And so um, really putting some of these principles together um, is a great way to get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of happiness. Wow. Well, that's interesting. It's the pay, it's the pay it forward concept comes, comes round again. That it's about serving others, it's about uh, connecting with others, it's about doing something good for someone else that actually elevates our own well-being, our own happiness. Exactly. And again, I think that's something that most of us recognize on an intuitive level, that helping others is important for happiness and can provide us with emotional rewards. But again, it's something that we need to keep in mind every time um, we reach for our wallet. What's next for you? What is your next bit of research? You you mentioned um, one project that you're working on, but what comes next? Where where do we go from here with the science of happier spending? Uh, Well, more and more, um, I'm actually moving towards thinking about some of the uh, devices that we keep with us all the time. So our uh, our smartphones, and increasingly there's uh, products emerging like Google Glass and. Fitbits, these um, devices that allow us to remain connected to other people and information no matter where we go. And we're becoming really fascinated with how um, these wearable devices that provide us with kind of omnipresent portals to other places and times everywhere we go, how these omnipresent portals may shape our happiness. So figuring out that mystery is our next challenge. Fascinating. Um, I had a conversation with a uh, a doctor over the weekend who had bought Google Glasses, and he is uh, an obstetrician, and he delivers babies. And he was he talked to me about how he had to write an essay to Google, and he got the glasses, and his whole intention was to use it as part of his practice to give others the virtual experience when they couldn't be present in the delivery room. And he was talking about, you know, that that how it also confused the mind because he would have mm. to actually be mindful of telling the glasses to take the picture, which okay. got in the way of the experience and the performance. Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, when um, uh, these really cool new tools with so much potential are coming out, we sometimes forget to both design them and use them in ways that sort of work with our existing psychological architecture. And we think that, you know, these devices have a lot of potential to enhance happiness. We're certainly not like technology naysayers, but we also think um, uh, people need to really proceed with caution in both designing and using these devices in ways that will support rather than undermine well-being. On the flip side of the coin, from my own personal experience, I cannot tell you how happy I am. Every year I go camping. I go on a a river rafting trip and I camp out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm a city girl. And when I go out to 
um, this Snake River in in Idaho and Wyoming, I uh, give up electronics because we have no connectivity. And my children also give up electronics. And at first, everybody was bristling. You know, how are we? How can we survive being off the grid here? And now it is something that we look forward to and actually enhances happiness, not being connected. Right, and I think many of us, although you know, very few of us would give up sort of email and all the connections and text messaging that we have, I, I think that taking a break from those, um, uh, that sort of constant connection can be quite valuable. And, in, you know, some of us aren't, you know, even if you're not lucky enough to be off at Snake River with sort of completely cut off and then get, getting to spend a little time in your own world, uh, we find in some of our newest research that even just cutting back so that you're only checking email three times a day can significantly reduce stress compared to sort of the constant email checking that so many of us do. I can't even imagine checking only three times a day. Can you? Or, or, are, you, or are you really I'm good about it? In this study, I don't know if I could handle it. But you know, people. These were people who got a lot of email, and the more email they got, the more beneficial this intervention was for them. Just staying staying offline until the appointed time. Right, making it not be this sort of constant distraction. So we know from past research that um, constantly switching between tasks um, uh, can really get in the way of our ability to be immersed in a task and to derive happiness from it. And so that's something that I think we need to really figure out and give people the tools to overcome in this modern world. And I have to say that I would think that this would be a fantastic frontier for study is the relationship between happiness and electronics because while while it is convenient for us all to have that instant 24-7 connectivity to the world, I can speak from my own experience that it it also dampens my ability to be in the moment because I know this other thing is going on over there. Exactly. And so... Uh, I think being aware of, you know, this, all this other stuff that we could be doing can be really problematic. So, um, again, sort of basic psychological research tells us that activating multiple competing goals is not very good for our happiness. So if I'm busy playing with my um, toddler at the playground, but I get a work email or even a message from a friend about the amazing party they're going to that night, it can distract me from that um, really being immersed in the experience of spending time with my children. Yep, yep, been there, done that, and, 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 the, and you know, my kids will say to me, they're, they're teenagers now, they'll be like, mom, mom, and it will be mom, and then it will get progressively louder and, and different in the names, you know, we'll amp up to Lisa, and then it will be uh, Lisa Lynn, which is my middle name, and then it will go to Mrs. Kamen, and it will go on and on and on until, like, they demand the attention, and I have to put down the device, and I don't blame them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's some uh, really uh, fascinating qualitative work showing that children really recognize when their parents are distracted by uh, these omnipresent portals to other worlds that we're all carrying around with us these days. And in fact, you know, we find in some of our um, other work that um, when parents are distracted by other goals, they don't get as much meaning out of the time that they spend with their children. And that time is diminished in our fast-paced society. You know, it used to be that we were with our kids from, you know, when they got up in the morning, at least when they were younger, until they go to sleep at night. And now that's changed. We're living in a very different environment. But I wanted to uh, mention for a minute about the concept of multitasking because that there is some mythology attached to it. And you touched upon that when you talked about, uh, I'll paraphrase it as toggling, going between um, tasks. 
Right. And so this toggling, I mean, one fascinating thing about multitasking is that um, people tend to overestimate how good they are at multitasking. I actually recognize that I'm a terrible multitasker. And it turns out that, you know, what research suggests is probably not that I'm any worse than other people. I just recognize how bad I am at it. Um, And in fact, uh, you know, when we're switching between tasks, um, that can kind of undermine our performance on all the things that we're trying to do. So I think to the extent that these sort of um, wearable devices from smartphones to Google Glass, to the extent that those um, uh, increase the level of distraction and the level of multitasking that we're engaging in, they do have some potential to get in the way of our well-being. And, and it doesn't mean that these devices are inevitably bad for our happiness by any measure. It just means that we need to think very carefully about how we design and how we use these new emerging devices um, if we're going to make them support happiness rather than undermine happiness. Perfectly said. And the concept of multitasking is highly overrated. You know, I too am not a very good multitasker and I'm a very proud unitasker. I like that, you know, that I can just put my hands on one thing, you know, and then Mm -hmm. complete it and then move on to the next. It often doesn't work out that way. But I feel like I do a better job and maybe you do too when you approach things one at a time. Right. And I think that's one reason why we saw this uh, benefit in terms of reduced stress for people in our study who were assigned to check email only three times a day. If you can only check email three times a day, you know, uh, you're still going to spend a decent amount of time on email. We found that people uh, who were checking email three times a day spent almost as much total time on email and responded to almost as many emails as people who were told to check email as much as possible. But because they weren't switching between tasks so much, we think that that's what really led to this significant reduction in stress that we saw occurring as a result of checking email a little less often. And and not being so connected actually can make us more connected. And I think that that's the point of what what this conversation is, where we're headed, is that when we uh, slow down, when we plug in, when we're more mindful, we're going to be happier. And when we are more um, diluted and doing multiple things at once, we never really get to fully embrace that experience of being present and being more mindful. And I know this is a buzzword lately, but being more alive and present and paying attention does make us happier at the end of the day. And I love the way you put it, that being less connected can make us more connected. I think that's just a beautiful encapsulation of what we're beginning to say, see in this new research. Although, you know, this is a very new project, and I think there's so many interesting, open, exciting questions and so much to learn about how technology shapes our well-being. Perfect. Well, thank you, Dr. Elizabeth Dunn. To learn more about Dr. Dunn's work, you can go to dunn.psych.ubc.ca. And the book is Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. You have been a delight, and we will have to connect back after you complete the next study because I know that your findings will be relevant to our audience and the world of happiness. Thank you so much. When we return, we are going to talk with an economist about the relationship between happiness and sex and libido and money, kind of a continuum here. But we're going to get racy and we want to share it with you. Here come those tunes. And when we return, we will learn more with Dr. Marina Adshad, an economist from Canada. She's the author of Dollars and Sex, How Economic Influences Sex and Love. Here come those tunes. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted 
We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, please download this podcast and share it because we are talking about the relationship between money, sex, libido, and happiness. And my next guest is economist Dr. Marina Adshade. She is also coincidentally at the University of British Columbia at the Vancouver School of Economics. She is a regular contributor to The Globe and Mail and Time.com. She's written for the Wall Street Journal and a host of other periodicals. And her her wheelhouse, her study is on the relationship of economics, of sex, and love. Dr. Adshade, let's just jump right into it because we don't have a lot of time and this is such a huge sub- subject, we're going to get you back and continue the conversation. But let's talk about your blog, Dollars and Sex. Yeah, th- thank you for having me on the show, by the way. It's such oh, a, a delight pleasure. to be speaking to you about this subject. Yeah, so I have... Uh, I've been talking about economics of sex and love for the last five years. I started blogging about it, um, and then I, I wrote my book, and it's turned out to be a really great topic for people because I think that many of us know that economics plays a role in the way that we form relationships, um, and, and my blog and, and the book has kind of made it possible for us to kind of spend a little bit more time thinking and talking about that. And it plays a huge role in the relationship. Money plays a huge dynamic in relationships. And we like to think it doesn't, but it does. It is the power central. And um, you can elaborate on this much better than I. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not even just money. It's, it's markets. You know, when we look, we go out and we look for somebody to have a relationship with, we're basically operating on a market that looks a lot like other markets that you might you know, shop for goods on, 
And I think that being aware of that is actually very useful for people. You know, when I talk about economics and applying it to sex and love, the idea is really not that um, I'm trying to tell people how to form relationships or what they should look for, or especially telling people that they should find the person who has the most money. I just think that people should be really mindful of the fact that they're on markets and that these factors play a role and that money matters and that income matters. Uh, things like education really matter to people. And so I think it's really useful for having, to have that dialogue. I agree. And when we talk about money and the relationship to it as it relates to relationships and happiness, the ability, uh, money buys opportunity. It doesn't just buy what's in the shopping bag. It does buy opportunity. And it ties into education, the experiences that we get to have in some cases, and also how we can connect with others, how we can serve. It has does. It's a, a multi-leveled, complex structure, but nonetheless, it matters. It absolutely matters. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that we see at the moment is there's so many more women going to university than there um, are men. And this has been going on for a long time, for maybe the last 30 years, um, that we see this real imbalance in in marriage markets, you know, where if somebody's looking to marry somebody who has a similar education to themselves, there's a lot of women out there right now who are saying, where are all the men who have university degrees like I have? And I I find that fascinating because it seems to me that if people care about marriage and they care about long-term relationships, um, men should really be thinking about this when they decide whether or not they go to university. The decision to go to university or not is is no longer just about, you know, income and and job. I think it really comes down to the type of relationships that you will have in the future. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. It's interesting what you say about all the women now who have multiple degrees. I mean, it's not just enough that you have an undergrad or a graduate degrees, a degree, but many of us are going out there and we're getting our doctorates or we're getting second and third um, uh, uh, master's degrees and our mates are not necessarily on par. It, their interest doesn't lie in education. They've moved on to other things. Maybe they're on their second or third careers, which is a, another phenomenon of our generation as well. We don't just stick to one thing. You know, yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 it's, there's just been this major shift in expectations of what people want in relationships um, because of the change in education. And it, it's just a great example of how economics is playing out into our own personal relationships. You know, for example, if you're a woman who's invested really heavily into your degree, your education, you know, you have multiple master's degrees, as you say, or, or you know, uh, a law degree or a medical degree, um, and you're out there and you're looking for a mate, it used to be that, that women like that wanted somebody who was similar, you know, somebody who, who had also invested a lot in education. But it seems to me now that a lot of women are, are starting to, to look for different types of men. Um, They've invested a lot in their education. They want to, you know, be in the workforce. And maybe instead of looking for a man who earns a lot of money, they're looking for a man who's, you know, has a job that has more flexibility, for example, somebody who can go home when the kids are sick or somebody who's willing to move cities when um, when she has a job opportunity. And this is very novel for us, right? We've, we've, we've had multiple generations of, of women who have been the ones who show flexibility, the ones who support their husband's careers. And I think that we're moving towards a situation where these women who have invested so much are looking for men who are willing to support their careers. Well said. Let's talk a little bit about the role that money plays with our libido and our sex lives because I think this is fascinating. (laughs) Hmm. Well, you know, um, 
it's it's true. You know, money can't buy you love necessarily, um, but it certainly makes it easier to to find it. And uh, I and I, I mean, it, it's we we see this in in the statistics that um, people who have higher incomes are, are more likely to. Um, have more active sex lives. They're more likely to to be married. And 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 by the way, you know it's interesting because my students, in particular, seem to think that there is a trade off between having sex and being married. But nobody has more sex than than married people, uh, by far and away. Um, and uh, and so there's there's clearly a relationship there between income and access to to sex. Um, there's been some interesting studies uh, that have to do with happiness. Uh, which will interest you and, and show that, you know, having more income doesn't necessarily make you happier, uh, but it definitely does give you more sex. And sex makes people happy when they're in good, connected, loving relationships for the most part and are engaged in sexual activity. It does increase happiness level. It increases an overall sense of well-being, let's say. You know, it does. It, it has. It does more than that. It it makes you happier. It makes people generally healthier. Um, it, there's some very good side effects to having an active sex life for sure. And yet, many of us cut our noses to spite our faces in that we lead such busy lives because we're on the treadmill pursuing what society tells us is happiness and success, buying the right car, the right pair of shoes, eating the correct meal and drinking the preferred soda, that by being on that treadmill, we bypass the very essence of what we're talking about, which is the connectivity that brings about the sustainable well-being. Yeah, you know, I think this is really true. You know, a couple of years ago, I was talking to my class because I, t- I teach a course on the economics of sex and love, and we were talking about uh, the relationship between education and sex. And, and my students were saying that they think that educated people are too busy to have sex. And I think that's kind of a sad commentary that at the age of twenty-one or twenty-two, when you're here in a university and you're getting education, that you think looking forward that that's what your life is going to be being too busy to to seek out sexual relationships or have meaningful sexual relationships with people. I mean, we'd wonder why anybody would invest in education under those circumstances, given how much human connection is important to us in our own lives. Well, and I think we're talking about, or this leads me to believe that we're talking about two kinds of sexual activity. There's the kind that um, comes from good, connected, loving relationship, and there's the kind of sexual activity that comes from being casual or perhaps even paying for it when the more money that we have, particularly men in general, the more money they have, the less emotionally connected they need to be in order to satisfy the sexual drive, which they can then go out and pay for it, which is probably a study unto itself. (laughs) <laughs> you know what's interesting though is that um, higher income men are not more likely to pay for sex than are lower income men you know it's it's it, I think that the reason is is that higher income men just have more access to sex anyway without paying for it so it, 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 that relationship doesn't necessarily play out it's the same with infidelity we always think that high income men are more likely to cheat on their marriages um, and that's because you know we see them in the news um, but that's not true as well. Low-income men are just as likely to, to cheat on their marriages as high-income men. Um, all the movement in that is in, is in women. High-income women are far less likely to cheat. They're, they make far more um, loyal. They're more loyal 
um, than women in the low-income groups. There's all sorts of fascinating relationships between income and, and the way people make their sexual choices. And that could be a radio show completely onto itself, which we are going to have in the future because I find this subject is um, very, very relevant to what's happening in, in our world today and the quest for the right relationship, the right mate, which you see on these commercials on TV. You know, every other commercial is about a dating site. You know, find your best match, find your soulmate, which is in a sense about paying to find that person. Yeah, you know, this is my new, this is, I'm writing a new book at the moment, and this is what I'm going to be talking about, is the idea that we now treat looking for love like we treat shopping for any other good. You know, love now is more like a consumption good than it ever has been before. And that's an interesting phenomenon, the people, the fact that people are out shopping for what they want. They're, They're making lists, and they're trying to find somebody who specifically meets their criteria, just like you would if you were looking for a condo or a car. And I think there's some interesting implications for our our happiness and our well-being in the long run. And they're not all bad, actually. I think there's some good things that will come out of this. I agree. You know, and, and speaking really to the heart of Dr. Dunn's book, you know, Happy Money, the Science of Happier Spending, where she talks about buying time, you know, paying for um, a service that frees you up from doing the things that you might not necessarily enjoy doing and giving that task to somebody who might be more proficient at it, which in a sense these services may be. You know, the fact that you can uh, surrender your dating life or at least the early vetting process to a a company that may be better at sussing out or teasing out the the criteria, I, I, I do see how there's a validity to that. Yeah, no, and in, in, in here in Vancouver, uh, where I am, we have a number of, of matchmakers, and these se- matchmakers seem to be growing in popularity. Uh, there seems to be new ones arriving here all the time, and, and basically what you're doing when you hire a matchmaker is you're finding somebody who will takes the time to find out about you, uh, find out specifically what you want, and goes out into the world and looks for someone. And, and this is a difficult thing for you to do for yourself. Indeed. Uh, Dr. Hutchett, we are out of time. I'm, oh. We're just we're definitely going to have you back, and we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Marina Adshay. To learn more, you can go to marinaadshay.com. On Twitter, she is at Dollars and Sex, and on Facebook, Dollars and Sex as well. And I hate ending on an abrupt note, so I'm going to do it with my usual comment, which talks about happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks to our producers who each week make us look and sound great. Nobody got no time anyway, somehow... Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts.